Hello, and welcome to Unabridged, the weekly podcast where teachers take on books. This is Sarah. Join us for bookish episodes and a monthly book club pick. This is Ashley. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Unabridged Pod, or go to our website, unabridgedpod.com, where the books we read are linked for purchase. This is Jen. Check out our Teachers Pay Teachers store, our Patreon page, and our newsletter. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to support us. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hi, and welcome to Unabridged. This is episode 175. Today, we're talking about revisiting the classics through retellings. Before we get started today, we just wanted to remind you about the Unabridged Ambassadors Program. As you listen today, you'll hear Sarah, who is at the Magical Reader on Instagram. She's one of our ambassadors, and she's giving her bookish check-in today. We just love the ambassador program. The ambassadors have a community. They share ideas with us. They vote on books and give us give me one topics and things like that. So they do a lot of things to support the podcast, and we love sending them swag and doing things to support them, shouting them out on social media and including them in our episodes. So if you're interested in joining the ambassadors program, you can just go to our website, unabridgedpod.com slash ambassadors. You can find out what the program is like, and you can sign up from there. So Today, we're going to start with our bookish check-in before we get into our retellings. And Sarah, what are you reading? I am reading Amy Meyerson's The Bookshop of Yesterday. It is a story about Miranda. It starts off in the beginning. She it's She's a little girl, and she has this really special relationship with her uncle, whose name is Billy. And it's her mother's brother, and he comes and takes her and does special things with her, and he makes like for gifts and things, he gives her these clues and she has to go on a scavenger hunt to find them. So that's kind of the first part, like the first little few pages of the book. And then, then we get Miranda. She's older. She is in her twenties. She is an eighth grade history teacher in Philadelphia. And she gets word that Billy has passed away. And so she flies home to California for his funeral and to, be with her parents. And we find out that when Miranda was around 12 years old, there was a rift in the, the family and she hadn't seen Billy since then. And her, neither has her mother. So he's died and they haven't had any contact, whereas they had used to be very close. So she receives a package in the mail and it's the, it's Billy's last scavenger hunt for her. So she, so I'm not going to give any spoilers. So she, so she goes on this hunt to kind of find out what happened with Billy and all of that when she wasn't in contact with him. And he happened also to own a bookstore called Prosper, Prospero Books after The Tempest. And she becomes, you know, really friends with the staff there. And it's so it's about this bookshop. It's about this family, it's about a secret. And then this last scavenger hunt that Billy has left for Miranda. It's a good story. I, I did get frustrated with Miranda a lot of the time. So sometimes that's hard when you feel frustrated, but I mean, I definitely wanted to, to hear how the story ended and I'm so, I'm so compelled to read it. And I, I mean, I think it's a good, good solid book so far. 
That sounds really good. Yeah, I love that about, I think a lot of readers are intrigued by books that have bookstores in them and have connections to books in them. And then that's really cool with the connections to the clues and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. That sounds really neat. Yeah, I mean, and if you're a book lover, there's especially classics, there are so many references and Billy uses books and his clues. So I think I think a lot of readers would really enjoy that experience. Oh, that's neat and perfect for this episode. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, that's cool. What about you, Jen? What are you reading? So I'm reading one. Sarah shared about this on a bookish check-in, but it's been a while. This is Liz Moore's Long Bright River. And I am reading the print copy thanks to Ashley, my good friend, who loaned me the book. My real life book club chose this one and I had not picked it up yet. But Ashley had, so yeah. But you haven't read it yet, right, Ashley? I have not, but it is so rare that I can share a book with you, friends. I'm very happy to do that. I always always share on here how Jen is like my personal library. so, So I'm grateful when on occasion I can share one with you. But no, I haven't read it yet. Maybe one day. Yeah, well, it is excellent. Oh, my goodness. I, yeah, I had a really hard time. I was reading it at breakfast this morning and did not want to put it down to finish getting ready for work, which is not a great situation. It's a bit of a mystery, but I would say it's a very character-driven mystery. It reminds me a little bit of Tana French's books, the way there are mysteries in those stories, but really they're about the characters. And it's there is a, a very compelling plot as well. But again, it's because it's illuminating these things about the characters. So the focus is on two sisters. Primarily, we see things from Mickey's point of view. And Mickey is in her 20s. She is a police officer in Philadelphia. She and her sister Casey were raised by their grandmother and they experienced poverty. They had a really difficult upbringing and Mickey is now a mom and her five-year-old son Thomas is just adorable and really, really smart. And she is determined as she's raising him alone that he will not experience the same difficulties that she and Casey did. Her sister Casey is a drug addict and she's a prostitute and Mickey has not spoken with her in a very, very long time. So Mickey is still a beat cop basically. And even though she hasn't talked to Casey, she is always sort of looking out for her and she drives by where the the corner where she knows her sister works and she knows who her friends are and she'll kind of check in without letting Casey know that she's checking in on her. And she notices after a while that she hasn't seen her. And that's not unusual to not see her for a few weeks, but it's been longer than usual. And then she's called to a homicide. And her first thought anytime she's called to a homicide is that it might be Casey. And it's not, but the fact that it is a homicide of a prostitute makes her worry. And then more dead bodies start popping up in the same situation around the same area where her sister is working. And so she is desperately trying to figure out what has happened to her sister while also trying to raise her son. She has no support from his father while also trying to hold it together as a police officer. One other really compelling part of the story is that she had a longtime partner named Truman And he was injured on the job. And so she, for a little while, is training a new police officer. And then she just can't get along with him anymore. And so then she's working alone. But there's always this 
sort of the absence of Truman is very much, we're very aware of it because he was a mentor for Mickey and really taught her a lot. She can be a little impulsive and she's not very good at playing politics. And so she has not always made friends with people who have power in the police department. And so she's always hearing Truman's wise advice kind of in her head and then not following what he would have advised her to do. So yeah, there's just, there's a lot of really great insight into relationships and into family and the ways that family can let us down, the way people who aren't family can become like family and can really be there for us. And as I was reading over breakfast, there was a big twist that happened, which is what made me really want to continue reading. So I am desperate to know how it ends. I've got, I think, 100 pages left. So I, I plan to finish that tonight. So yeah, that is Liz Moore's Long Bright River. And I absolutely love it. Yeah, I am really interested after hearing Sarah talk about it before that I've been interested in reading it for sure. And it sounds really great. Oh my goodness. It is so well written. And again, just these people seem real and... I just think it's a really important topic right now. I think, Sarah, you mentioned Dope Sick when mm -hmm. you talked about it. And I, I keep thinking about that book. And yeah, there's a lot that's kind of spun out from the situations that Beth Macy illuminated in Dope Sick as well. So it's great. But, so Ashley, what are you reading? So when I just started is Aiden Thomas's Lost in the Neverwoods. I have heard such great things about Thomas's other work, Cemetery Boys, which I have not read yet, but cannot wait to read. And I know that they've received a lot of praise for that and that, that it's a phenomenal book. And so I also, this one is perfect for this episode. And I started it because I had seen it on Bookstagram and I'm listening to it thanks to Libro FM. And so I was intrigued by it when I saw it pop up on the ALC list and then realize that, yeah, it works for this too. And I should mention that part of why we're discussing revisiting the classics with retelling is because as many of you know, for our Unabridged Pod Challenge this year, that's one of the categories. So we wanted to give some suggestions of books that we've enjoyed. And I'm only a little ways into this one, but this would be a perfect fit for the category because it is a retelling of Peter Pan and it is phenomenal so far. So when the story opens, we meet Wendy Darling, and she is, it's her 18th birthday, and she is at the hospital with her best friend, Jordan. They both work there at, and help out in the nurse area. Her mom is a nurse, and so she does things to help out in that area. And when the story opens, her friend is trying really hard to make things celebratory for her, but there are all these police officers in the hospital and there's this kind of ominous feeling. And so she doesn't know what's going on, but she can tell that something is wrong. And finally she gets it out of her friend that a young girl that she spends a lot of time with is missing. So the young girl comes to the hospital frequently because her mom needs dialysis. And so when the girl, her name's Ashley Ford, when she, is at the hospital, Wendy takes care of her and spends a lot of time with her and she's really close to her. So this girl goes missing and that is uh, on the heels of another child a day or two before who also was missing. And the boy who was missing 
people were not quite as concerned about at first because he had run away before. So there was some speculation. It was easier for the community to dismiss his disappearance. He's a little bit older. So it was suspect. People were worried, but not taking it quite as seriously. But then the second child disappears as well. You know, her friend Jordan's kind of trying to protect her from the child being missing. And we come to understand that part of why is because she and her brothers were found in the woods five years earlier. They had disappeared and only Wendy was found. So they don't know what happened to the brothers, but they are gone. And they had been missing for six months when Wendy reappeared. And she has no memory at all of that time period. So that was part of why the friend, she knew she'd be upset because she was close to the little girl, but also because it dredges up all of these memories of what happened with her brothers. And so then she's driving on her way home after that, and she's kind of shaken, but she is trying to head home. And meanwhile, she can't get out of her mind this tree that she keeps drawing, and she's been drawing the tree kind of without meaning to. So it's like that idle doodling, but the doodling is something she doesn't seem to have any control over. And then she also has been drawing all these eyes and it's the same pair of eyes of a boy that she can't get out of her mind, but she's never seen the boy as far as she's aware. So all those things are swirling in her mind as she's driving through these creepy woods. And then suddenly on her drive, something black comes across her car and causes her to swerve off the road and she realizes that there is a body in the road Mm. so she pulls off on the side and realizes that something is there in the road and when she goes over to the body it's peter who she has never Uh. seen in real life but has told all these stories of to her brothers when they were little so it's peter like peter pan And Wendy had always told those stories to her younger brothers and has this image of him. But she, as far as she knows, she's never seen him in real life. But there he is. And he gets taken to the hospital. He is okay, seemingly. So something is wrong. And initially, he's kind of unconscious. But, you know, he is, considering the fact she found him in the middle of the road, he seems to be okay. So they take him to the hospital. And when he awakens, he knows her name. And he's calling out for her. And so then things evolve from there. And I don't want to give any spoilers, but I mean, I think it is so compelling right at the beginning. But I also like the way that, I mean, it is a creepy story. And I like the way that it highlights the ways that Peter Pan's story is quite dark. Mm -hmm. And I think that I appreciate how somber the situation is and what the impact is on the community and seeing Wendy, who is such a responsible young woman, but also who has this really tragic past that she's trying to find her way forward. I mean, I am completely captivated. The audio is excellent. And like I said, I like that. It's I mean, it is ominous, but I also appreciate it's shining a particular light on a classic. And I think sometimes when we think about retellings, it's interesting to see how the authors choose to cast light on a story that's commonly known Mm -hmm. and so again that's aiden thomas's lost in the neverwoods oh my goodness i can't wait to read that i love cemetery boys so much and this sounds very yeah it was the same kind of magical fantastical world it is dark yeah wonderful that sounds great yeah i mean i really i kind (laughs) of stumbled upon it like the cover is really compelling and then like Mm -hmm. i said i'd heard such great things about aiden thomas and so i'm happy that i started it but yeah i can't wait to see what happens i wasn't expecting to be 
so compelled so quickly, but it really right. just, I mean, all the things I shared happen very quickly. So it really grabs your attention right away. So awesome. And like I said in the beginning, today we have Sarah, who you can find at The Magical Reader on Instagram. She has lots of great things going on on there. She shares great books and has a lot of other community opportunities to be involved in chats and things like that. So be sure to check her out. And she's sharing with us today, Veronica Ross Divergent. Hey, y'all. Hello, Unabridged listeners. My name is Sarah, and I am an ambassador for Unabridged Podcast, but I am also a middle school gifted ed and STEM teacher in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. You can find me on Instagram at The Magical Reader. The book that I'm currently reading, and I just started, is Divergent. So I know this is an old favorite for a lot of people, and honestly, I could keep rereading this book until the end of time. Um, I just finished a really intensely beautiful but also emotional historical fiction book, Being All the Light We Cannot See. Um, And I just wanted to go back to a story I was familiar with after that until I felt ready to pick up my next new read. Um, So I'm back in the Divergent story, and I love to recommend this book to my students and the whole series to my students because while it was written, you know, a decade ago, and we are getting some new anniversary covers, which is cool, it does have incredible tie-ins to our world and society. The characters are really interesting people that you can identify with. They're stubborn. They can be afraid. They can be curious. Um, they could be adventurous. And you can immediately see yourself in them. Um, but you can also see yourself within the factions as well. And the faction system is a really big part of Divergent in that those are the groups that people live in based on their strongest personality traits. So potentially their honesty or their adventurous nature or their intelligence. The pacing of the book is incredible. It's, it's nonstop action. Right? And regardless of the fact that I know what's going to happen as it's a reread for me, I'm still breezing through it because I want to relive what happens next. A really interesting component of the story for me is the idea of fear landscapes, which is where individuals experience their fears in a simulation and have to combat them before they're able to wake up. So not only do I think it's really interesting as I read along to think about what faction I might be in, for me it's dauntless, um, but what my fear landscape might contain. Right. The romance itself is also really interesting to me as a not-so-often-romance lover, and the character Four is one of my favorite male book characters. It is part of the story, but the romance doesn't take up the whole story. Right. I'm really looking forward to getting back into this world fully and trying to find some of those new connections that I might have missed the first time that I read the book. Well, thank you, Sarah, for sharing that with us and letting us know what you're reading right now and for being an ambassador. And like I said in the beginning, if anybody listening is interested in the ambassador program, you can just go to unabridgedpod.com slash ambassadors. So today for our main discussion, we wanted to each recommend a retelling of a classic. So like I said, my bookish check-in worked out well for that. But we did try to plan to read something that we could share with you. And so each of us is going to pick one. I know that Sarah and I read specifically for this. I think Jen actually has read quite a few retellings and, yeah, has probably a lot to choose from. I love a retelling. So, yes. I And I've been on a weird kick lately that's been completely accidental. So, yeah, I don't know, what, I don't know what's going on there, but I've been in a classic mood, I guess. 
It is fun to do the retellings. And we we shared before Sonali Devs, Pride, Prejudice, and other flavors, which you can listen back to. But that is a retelling of Pride and Prejudice, which is a fun one. That was fun for me to read as a retelling. So Jen, which one did you narrow it down to? Which one are you going to share today? So... After much thought and deliberation, no. <laughs> I, I will say before she shares that on our document where we make notes, she had something, she had one list and she was like, I could share others. <laughs> and I thought, I can't. <laughs> anyway, go ahead, Jen. Which one did you pick? Sure. So I recently read and absolutely loved Patricia Park's Re-Jane, which is a retelling of Jane Eyre. I do have to tell a mini funny story before I get started. So I, for a long, I have had Re-Jane on my shelf for years, and I have also had a retelling called Jane Steele by Lindsay Fay on my shelf for years. It's also a Jane Eyre retelling. And I knew that one of them was a retelling in which Jane Eyre is a serial killer. And I had it in my head that that was re-Jane. And so I started this book and I was like, this is really strange. I I was, how on earth is this going to turn into the serial killer? So I kept trying to like look for these clues <laughs> to figure out that Jane was going to be a serial killer and realized eventually that I had the wrong book. So I felt really, really dumb. Anyway, I have not read that other one yet, but I'll be sure to review it when I do. Re-Jane though is a retelling. So this Jane was born in Korea. She is, her mother was Korean and her father was an American soldier. She did not know him at all, but her family has told her this. Her mother died when she was a toddler and her family, especially her grandfather, the head of the family did not approve of her because she is half American. Her uncle Sang moved to the United States to start a family business there. And basically the grandfather says either he can take in Jane or she's going to go to an orphanage. So Sang and his wife, Hannah, do take in Jane. They are childless at that time, but then after they have a daughter and a son. So Jane and her cousins are raised together. She feels... Like it's been a very rough upbringing. Her family owns a grocery store and she has to work there. She feels like she can never do anything right. That no matter what path she takes, no matter how well she does in school, no matter what decisions she makes, that her aunt and uncle are very, very critical of her. So for example, she got into a very prestigious university but knew that her family couldn't afford to send her there. So she chose to go to a less prestigious school that was more affordable. And her uncle has never stopped criticizing her for that decision, even though she felt like she was doing it on behalf of her family. So as she was graduating from college, she got a job at a very prestigious like brokerage firm. And this is the, the, technically this is historical fiction. It happened when the economy was quite bad and the brokerage firm basically goes bro broke and all of the new hires coming out of college who had jobs, those jobs are eliminated. So Jane came out of school with this very bright future, despite having gone to this less prestigious university or yeah, university. And then she's jobless. So she's stuck still working at the same grocery store, She's in her early 20s. She's never allowed to go anywhere. Her aunt and uncle are very conservative and very concerned about what she's doing. And so she just is feeling 
very, very trapped by her circumstances. She ends up meeting this girl who encourages her to apply for a job as a nanny. And at first, Jane is not at all interested. She feels as if this is just going to be one more reason for her aunt and uncle to criticize her. But she decides that it would be a way to get out of their house and just to get away from them a little bit and to have control over her own money. So she applies for the job. She has a pretty good phone interview. And then the couple wants to meet her. So she goes to their house. And so the mother is Beth Mazur. And she is a professor at a local college. And her specialty is feminist study of 19th century literature. And the husband, Ed Farley, is an English teacher at a very prestigious private school. And the girl who would she would be the nanny for is their daughter who was adopted from China. And there was a misunderstanding and they thought that Jane was part Chinese and spoke Chinese. And that was why they wanted her to be the nanny. And so there's a lot of commentary about this confusion. There's a lot of embarrassment. It's this horribly awkward scene. There was a lot of secondhand embarrassment going on here because, yeah, it takes Jane a while to figure out what's going on. It takes the Ed and Beth a while to figure out what's going on. The daughter loves Jane and is just oblivious to the entire situation and is just so excited that Jane is going to be her nanny. But they basically give her this very polite brush off and she goes home totally dejected that this chance to escape has gone awry. A couple weeks later, she gets a call. They haven't found anybody else. And so she ends up going back to work in their home. From there, things get very interesting. As you might guess, Ed is like Edward Rochester, and there is some inappropriate romantic attention to Jane, who is living in the home with him and his wife. Patricia Park does a great job playing with the conventions of Jane Eyre. So Beth's uh, attic office <laughs> is where it's... It, it's like she goes a little mad when she's up there working on her work <laughs> for school. And she actually has some feminist studies of Jane Eyre and specifically of Bertha Mason. So it's this very kind of wry, like nod to the original text, which I absolutely loved. It's really fun. Beth wants to take Jane under her wing and to teach her to be a feminist. And so she's giving her all of these super complicated feminist essays that she does not understand. So then at night when Beth's asleep, Ed meets her in the kitchen, makes her a sandwich and tutors her, which turns into something more. (laughs) (laughs) The word tutor seems so loaded. (laughs) It it is very loaded. One of the things I really appreciated about this book is that it uses its source material so well, but it is not beholden to it. So there are parts that really stray from the original text in ways that I think are illuminating for our modern condition. I love Jane Eyre because I think in some ways it's a very modern Victorian book, but there are still parts of it that are really problematic for a modern female reader in particular. And so I like the fact that Patricia Park is playing with that and kind of loading up some commentary in there. There's also a section of the novel. I don't want to talk about why, because that is kind of a spoiler, but Jane ends up going to Korea. And this is a chunk kind of right in the center of the novel. And 
it is one of my favorite parts. So she finds out a lot about her mother and father that she didn't know. And she also, it is this big trip of self-discovery that I thought was just brilliantly written. And again, it provides this great reason to depart from some of the plot that happens in Jane Eyre. So I think that's all I can say without spoilers, but I just, the writing is brilliant. It's funny in unexpected ways. I think the characters are just great. And yeah, so I really, really loved it. That is Patricia Parks, Re Jane. And I should say her name is Jane Re. And then, yeah, so it's flipped. So that's why that's the title. Oh, that's neat. That sounds fascinating. And I do, I love that when they, when the writer points to the text and explores that. I think that's really interesting. And I appreciate that willingness to acknowledge those connections and then explore them. I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. What about you, Sarah? What's your pick? So mine is also a retelling of Jane Eyre, but much different (laughs) than what Jen (laughs) described. Mine is Rachel Hawkins's The Wife Upstairs. And this is kind of like a Southern slash Gothic slash domestic suspense book. It is about Jane who is new in town and it's Birmingham, Alabama. And she is a dog walker in Thornfield Estates, this big community that is, has these huge mansions and all of these ladies who meet and have like wine at lunch and that type of thing. And she walks dogs for the people in the community. And she happens to run into Eddie Rochester, who <laughs> who has recently lost his wife, B in a drowning. And he happens to have a dog that was B's that he needs to have to be walked. And so she starts walking his dog and we find out that Jane has like this mystery, mysterious past. She doesn't, she doesn't really have any connections and she refers to the past, but it's very murky and you get this feeling that you're going to find out some, some stuff that, that has happened to her or that she's done that it's just all this mystery surrounding her and her past And she ends up developing this friendship with Eddie and then starts to fall for him. And you also find out that his wife is not dead. He has her locked in this panic room in the upstairs. And you get these interspersing chapters of her point of view, which is really unsettling. And it's, you know, it is really compelling. I think this is probably my favorite suspense book that I've read in a while because suspense is not my favorite, but I had it and I was like, I'm just going to read it. And I really enjoyed it and thought it was compelling. And I was satisfied with the ending, which a lot of times is what I don't like about suspense books is that I feel like the ending is just jumps the shark. And I didn't feel that way in this one. I felt, I felt satisfied. And I, I do think that if you have, if you have to read a book where you can, you really like all the characters or you like one of the characters, I don't, I thought that these characters weren't that likable. Even Jane, who is kind of the main character, but like, again, you get different points of view. 
but I, I really liked it. I thought it was really compelling. And I thought it was a great, like Jen said about her book, it was a great nod to the source material, but I also felt like it didn't take itself too seriously. And it, it's a fast read too. So I really like that one. So that is Rachel Hawkins's The Wife Upstairs. I love that one too. Yeah, I totally agree with your review there. Yeah, Not really. It was so good. And I like that, that it's like a, such an interesting approach. Like that, that genre is fascinating. So to take a classic and then spin it into a thriller yes. <laughs> is really interesting. Well, and I mean, I think you feel like the mystery is that the wife has drowned, but you know, from the beginning, I mean, the name of the book is the wife upstairs. So, you know, from the beginning and when she starts interspersing her voice, it is just really unsettling, but I think perfectly done. I really enjoyed the reading experience with that one. Ashley, what is your pick? So listeners know that I love Hina Han. She wrote Ominous Voice and Ominous Song, and I plan to read everything she writes. I think that she does middle grade really well. And so I saw more to the story by her at our local bookstore. And I didn't realize at first that it was a retelling, but it is a retelling of Little Women. And thanks to Susie, one of our ambassadors for pointing that out. And and so then I was more excited to pick it up and knew it would be a great fit for this. And so in this one, Jamila is the main character and she is one of four sisters. And like the ones that you all shared, Hinahan nods to the source material quite a bit throughout, but it is a very different story also. And so you do have the connections. There are four sisters. There are some similarities, even as far as their names and stuff like that, their age separation. So you see those connections, but again, you know, a unique story as well. And so this one Jamila is in middle school and she is passionate about writing. And so she wants to be a journalist and is interested in the school newspaper. She was really involved in it her sixth grade year and this is her seventh grade year. And she wants to be involved, but also has a vision for what she thinks the newspaper could be that is different than a lot of the people on staff. So a lot of them are interested in what she considers to be really mundane topics and just kind of breezy things that are fun for people to read, but not very serious. And she wants to explore serious topics with debates and to show different perspectives. And so that's one thread of the story. But as the story gets going, you find out that her dad has lost his job and that although her parents are trying to protect the the daughters from the financial worries, it's causing strain. And so they're worried about their finances. And early on, he has to take a job in Abu Dhabi. And so, and he's going to be gone for a minimum of six months. So the girls have never been away from him before and certainly not for such an extended period of time. So they're all really upset, but Jamila and her older sister are trying to put on a brave face for their two younger siblings and to accept that this is happening, but it is a big adjustment for them. Meanwhile, there is a new guy who has come over from Britain and his name is Ali and he is living with their family friends who are his aunt and uncle. And so he's come to live with them. He had a, he lost his father, his dad had a heart attack. And so 
his mom and his sister are planning to move as well because they have more family in America, but they're not able to come yet. So he comes first and is in eighth grade at the same school where Jamila is in school. And so he comes in and the girls are all noticing him and are, you know, fascinated by his accent, by his perspective, and are just getting to know him. Well, the dad leaves and in a lot of ways, Ali is very comforting to them. He's especially great with her younger sisters and helps them through this transition of their dad being gone. But then pretty soon after that, we find out that Bisma, her younger sister, is sick and has a lump on her throat. And early on, Jamila and the other siblings are really dismissive of it because she was prone to kind of hypochondria, you know, she had, Jamila had this long list of, remember when you thought you had this and it was, you know, it was nothing. You remember when you had this and it was nothing. So they didn't even mention it at first because her mom was already so stressed with her dad being gone. But when they take her in, they put her, the doctor puts her on antibiotics. It doesn't have any impact and it becomes clear that she has something major going on. And so things go from there. And so I felt like that part was connected to the source material as well. And I was remembering all over again, Beth being sick and little women and what that was like for the four sisters. And so there is a lot of that. So I think it's it's hopeful and it's positive. And I think one of the things I really appreciated in the story is that Ali, because he had lost his dad and knew what it felt like when people responded to that, he was so well equipped to guide Jamila and Azila, her youngest sister, and her oldest sister through how to help Bezma instead of pitying her all the time or worrying over her constantly. He really helps Jamila see the best way to really support her and to play with her and to help her feel good. And so I think all of that was just really rich and it's something that's really great for middle grade kids to read. I think that a lot of times we as a society and as individuals and as adults don't always know how to navigate when someone is sick or when someone has had a loss and how to handle that. And so I appreciate that being spelled out for kids. And I just think that through Ali's character, we see this really genuine perspective on how to how to help somebody who is going through a hard time and to do it in a way that makes them feel supported. And so all these things are happening and it's really stressful for them that their dad has gone through a lot of this. And so that's been hard on their mom. But I still, the story is a lot about finding their way forward. And I don't want to give spoilers. So I think that, you know, the main thing is that in the beginning, she has these very inconsequential worries compared to these bigger things that evolve pretty quickly with her dad being gone and then with her sister being sick. But what Jamila comes to see is that those little things still feel impactful too. And so she is navigating these social dynamics at school and she is trying to figure out the right thing to do for the newspaper and has some pretty big problems related to that. And she is, like her attention is toward Ali even though she maybe feels guilty that she's interested in what he thinks or how he acts. And so I think that all of that just plays really nicely. And again, I think it's something that I've seen consistent with her other books that I just love the way that I think that Han as an author explores really heavy topics alongside 
seemingly inconsequential ones, but things that are very important for middle grade readers. So I absolutely loved it. I think it's a beautiful retelling and I love the connection between the sisters. There are tensions between them. There are kind of alliances between, you know, two of them are closer and the other two are closer and like those kinds of things play out in the story. And so it's, it's a great sibling story like Little Women and points nicely toward the original text. So again, that's Hannah Hans, more to the story. Oh, I really want to read that. It sounds so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It made me want to reread Little Women because it has been a long time since I read it. And so I loved this one. And then, you know, it just made me think about the the original story and how great it is. And it was sweet. The author's note at the end is really sweet about her, how much the author absolutely loved Little Women growing up and how it was her sister's copy, but ultimately her sister gave it to her. And, um, you know, just that she knew it backwards and forwards and was happy to connect to the original text. So, Aww. I mean, just really sweet. I will say I reread that recently when the new movie was coming out. I wanted to reread it before the new movie and I listened on audio and it was phenomenal. I have to look up. I can't remember who the narrator was, but it was an amazing audio version. So that would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's good to know. I might look for that. We hope you enjoyed those recommendations. If you haven't signed up for the Unabridged Challenge yet, one of the great things about it is it's not month to month. So you can still jump in and join us. There's plenty of time to participate. And if you would like to sign up, the categories are posted on our website and there is a place to sign up there and just say that you're joining in. And when you are reading for it, you can always use our hashtag unabridgedpodreadingchallenge. And if you want more information about it, just go to our website, unabridgedpod.com slash Reading Challenge 2021. And there it has all the categories and everything you might want to know. And we would love to hear your suggestions for this category and for the others. To finish up today, we have our Give Me One. And this is a piece of wisdom imparted by a parent or grandparent or other adult. Jen, what's your advice? So I will say my parents and grandparents were very wise, but I'm sharing a piece of advice from a teacher friend. I had a very difficult first year teaching, as I'm sure many teachers did. And I remember I would sit at lunch with my department and starting like Monday, I would say, I cannot wait for the weekend. I cannot wait for Friday to get here. I cannot wait. And Kay Norris, who was this amazing veteran teacher, she had this big booming voice and she would say, Jennifer, you're wishing your life away. You got to cherish the moment, which can sound kind of cheesy, but it really, it, it was just one of those moments that made me pause and think I cannot always be wishing for the weekend. And so, yeah, sometimes I'm not very great at living in the moment and enjoying what I'm doing. I get stressed or I think about my to-do list and I just try to think about that periodically. So yeah, don't wish my life away. Cherish the moments I have. Yeah, that's great advice. And I too think there is a temptation to do that for, because weekends are fun. And it is, if you work a week job and a, you know, regular hour job, it is hard not to do that. So I think that's great advice. What about you, Sarah? What's the one you want to share? I too, I too have so many things that I feel like, I don't know that there's things that can be like encapsulated in a saying, but I think the thing that my mom and my grandparents and my dad, like my family has imparted me that it's always, it's very important to always have a meal together, which I try to do with my own family. And even if it's 
sandwiches or something, but just to sit around the table together and be together at least once a day. And I've noticed as my kids get older, it gets and are going off to different things, it gets more difficult. So like, I'm really trying to consciously make sure that that happens at least, at least a majority of the week. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, that's a great one. How about you, Ashley? So after I had my oldest child, something that my mother-in-law said often is say yes, every chance you can. And I think that that was such great advice and it's something I still think about a lot because first of all, I think that as new moms, we actually feel that often people feel the opposite that you have, you should be saying no, that it's important to be clear in your guidelines. And I mean, certainly from the classroom and also from my personality type, like that's definitely um, something that's important to me. And so I think my temptation often is to feel like I have to be really stringent about God, you know, saying no, basically, and being really strict about stuff. And, but I also think that I appreciated somebody highlighting the fact that you have to say no a lot. And so just say yes when you can <laughs> and don't sweat mm -hmm. it, you know, don't, don't sit there and beat yourself up about it. And I think that was really freeing. I mean, that was great advice. So it's something that I think about a lot still that if it's not going to hurt anything to say yes, that it's okay to do that because there are plenty of times that we have to say no. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, I mean, again, just something that I would not have thought of on my own. And so it was great advice. I love that too. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed our discussion today. Thank you for joining us. Be sure and let us know on social media what retellings you have read and enjoyed. We would love to add those to our list. And also let us know the advice that you've been given that has been useful for you in your life. Thanks for listening. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at UnderbridgePod or on the web at UnderbridgePod.com for a list of ways to support us. We'd like to thank Jared Featherstone, who composed our theme music, Strings of Light, and Katie Amy of Amy Photography, our podcast photographer. Thanks for listening to Unabridged. 